you join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're using the blue ESV Bible, that's on page 961, page 961. We are going to look this morning at verse 20. The title of our sermon is Christ the First Fruits, and the title and the keywords for our worshipers and training are resurrection, first fruit, and dead. Now, many of us are likely familiar with the phrase crossing the Rubicon. And the name that goes with it is Julius Caesar. Those two are virtually synonymous because of the event that was supposed to have happened in 49 BC. Caesar was appointed to a governorship over a region that ranged from uh, southern Gaul to Illyricum. It was quite a large region. And when his term as governor had ended, uh, the Roman Senate ordered Caesar to disband his army and to return back to Rome. He was explicitly ordered not to bring his army across the Rubicon River, which at the time was the northern boundary of Italy. So, as the story goes, in January of 49, Caesar brought the 13th legion across the river. This, to the Roman government, was an act of insurrection. It was treasonous. It was a declaration of war on the Roman Senate. And thus began the Roman Civil War as Julius Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon. That's where the phrase comes from. Now, I believe this story is true. You probably believe this story is true as well. And here's why I believe it's true. Because we have the work of Caesar in his book called The Civil War. And he made reference to this event. At least uh, in addition to this, we have the writings of Cicero, who was a historian who seemed to validate the claim that Caesar made as well. In other words, from an historical perspective, there is no reason to question whether or not it actually happened. There are also other minor circumstantial evidences that could be looked at, but unless someone was able to provide a credible explanation as to why it's irrefutable that it didn't happen, I think it's reasonable to believe that Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon. But here's what's interesting about that event in history. We really don't have a lot of other evidence than what I've mentioned. We don't have eyewitness accounts. We don't have anything recorded in an official government record. The historical writers who wrote about it were at least a generation removed from the event itself, so they were only reporting on what they heard, not what they saw or experienced. And the surviving manuscripts that even talk about it in any way are at least several generations removed from the events that we know about and are assumed to be factual. In fact, most events like this that are reported on throughout history and in our history books or on history shows and movies that you might watch on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or even encyclopedias that you might read, you're actually hard-pressed to find any kind of referencing data to show where the original information came from. It's just believed to be fact, and we all assume it's a fact because it's written down in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, for those of you under the age of 25, an encyclopedia is a book that has words in it, and it gets put on a shelf. And you take it off, and you read about a historical event, and you put it back. It's kind of like Wikipedia, but it can't be changed. Now, what's interesting 
is that as we read those things, as we watch those things, as we understand those things historically, many of the people of the world will accept these events as historically accurate based on very little evidence. When it comes, though, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, many people will deny an overwhelming amount of evidence in order to say it never happened. But what if we offer a standard of evaluation of the historical record alone? What would you hope to see from an ancient event that has been recorded? Well, to think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we're facing the most important question any human being can answer in his or her lifetime. Was Jesus raised from the dead? Everything hinges on our response to that single question. George Eldon Ladd said this, The historical evidences which prove the resurrection are obvious for all to see. The reason that all men do not see them is the sinful blindness of the human heart. Only the man of faith can see the facts of history. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark without any historical evidences. Neither will historical evidences demand faith. For the man of unbelief will always come up with different historical explanations. However, faith is supported and reinforced by historical evidences. So what historical evidences do we have? Well, before we get to verse 20 this morning, I want, I want us to think about the context leading up to what Paul says here. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 5 through 8, Paul points to the most convincing and most undeniable evidences of them all. And what was that? That was eyewitnesses. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul adds, Jesus appeared to many people. People saw him. People talked to him. People sat down and had meals with him. And it's important to see who he appeared to. There's three categories of people that Jesus appeared to after he was raised from the dead. Here they are. The first is that Christ appeared to central authority figures in the church. The second, Christ appeared to large numbers of people. If you add them all together, it appears to be about 12,500 people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead as well as all of the apostles. And third, Christ appeared to Paul himself, who is writing this account. So Paul saw him, and the public saw him. It was public news. It was public discussion. He says, first of all, that Jesus appeared following his death and resurrection to his friends. That include Peter, who who was trained by Jesus personally for three years. Peter would have recognized him. Now remember, Peter was a bit of a coward. He denied Jesus three times as Jesus went to his execution. He lacked courage. Until what? Until he saw Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus spoke to him. He reinstated him as a leader for ministry. Peter was altogether transformed into this bold, courageous man by the resurrection of Jesus. He went on to preach on the resurrection of Jesus, and to suffer punishment for his name. He wrote two books of the Bible bearing his own name, and ultimately when they went to crucify him, he didn't deny Christ. He said, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. He would not recant. So some people will say, well, these people 
They were liars. Now think about that argument. We're talking about men who serve the poor and needy and the widows and orphans and outcasts. Now that doesn't absolve them from the ability and the capability of lying, but it does say something about their character in general. These weren't men that were greedy. These weren't men seeking power or, or fame or fortune. They suffered. They were on the run. They were hated and despised. They were murdered in poverty and in shame. Why? Not because they committed a crime or got into a fight or instigated a riot. They died because they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and they made it known and they weren't willing to back down. Jesus also appeared to his other disciples, including Thomas. Some of you here this morning might be a lot like Thomas, a great doubter in terms of the resurrection. Thomas wondered if Jesus had indeed rose from the dead as he was hearing, and he said, I won't believe for myself until I see him with my own eyes, until I touch him with my own hands. I need to have the evidence. And so what did Jesus do? He appeared to Thomas. And Thomas investigated the body of his friend. He saw his crucifixion scars. And Thomas said, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus did die. I was there. Then he was buried. I saw it. And he fell down as we all should. And Thomas declared before the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my God. Thomas worshipped Jesus Christ as God. And so Jesus appeared to his friends. He also appeared to many strangers. Peter tells, tells us that Jesus appeared to crowds numbering 500 people at a time. He wasn't in hiding. He was alive. He was walking around. He was publicly visible for all to see. Everyone had an opportunity to verify that he indeed had risen from the dead. So Paul tells his, his readers, look, I'm telling you this happened, but if you don't believe me, then go ask all of these other eyewitnesses. If I'm lying, surely some of them will tell you I'm lying because this letter was not penned at a point in history when, when it was hundreds of years following the resurrection of Jesus. There wasn't sufficient time for myth and legend and fable and fol folklore to occur through a, a verbal record. No, this was penned when many eyewitnesses were still alive and could verify the facts, unlike our understanding of Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. Jesus appeared to his friends. He appeared to strangers, he appeared to family, and he did not hide. Some people might say, well, these are his friends, maybe acquaintances and family, uh, Maybe they were predisposed to eagerly yearn for the coming of Jesus from the dead. Maybe they worked together out of their heart's longing because they really wanted Jesus to be raised, and so they made this up, and hundreds of thousands of people were in on the lie. And maybe, maybe they all suffered because the lie was important enough for them to suffer and to defend it in the end. Well, that sounds ridiculous to me, but let's say all of that's true for a second. Paul might give you an out on all of that, but then he makes this final point and it sort of puts the nail in the coffin to this argument to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this, he says, I saw him too. And you might say, well, who cares? Nobody can verify what Paul says he saw. You're right, but we have to think about who Paul was. He wasn't who these other people were. Remember, Paul wasn't following Jesus around day by day. He wasn't a friend or a follower or a disciple or even an acquaintance. Who was Paul? 
Paul was an enemy of Jesus. Paul hated Jesus with a kind of deep hatred that few have ever had for Jesus or anyone else. And so as a result, he despised his followers. He despised Christians. One of the first introductions we have to Paul is in the book of Acts where where Paul was struck with with this, he was given this, this obligation that he had as a Pharisee to go and oversee the execution and the unjust murder, in this case, of of Stephen, one of Jesus' disciples. And Paul was, was directly responsible for Stephen being stoned to death because he was a worshiper of Jesus. Until what happened? Until Paul himself saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And upon seeing the Lord Jesus restored to life, Paul had to come face to face with the irrefutable fact that Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh who who has taken away the penalty of sin and conquered death and he alone deserved to be worshipped. Paul was radically transformed. He went from being a murderer of Christians to an apostle of Christ because of the resurrected Lord Jesus. He went from being a man who devoted his life to destroying Christianity to a man who gave his life in service to Christianity. He is a man who is shipwrecked and homeless and beaten and left for dead and impoverished and on the run and in prison for one reason. He wouldn't stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is essentially saying this. He said, I wouldn't lie. I would not have such a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of life if indeed this was not factually true. So the bigger question in my mind is why would a guy like Paul tell a lie when it was absolutely opposed to everything he was committed to? Why would he tell a lie that profited him no power, no fame, no money, and no glory? In fact, he already had all of those things as a Pharisee. All it brought him was shame and disgrace and death in terms of the world. He was previously a highly respected religious leader. He was an affluent man. He had a bright future ahead of him. And he gave all of that up and had an absolutely transformed heart and mind regarding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer to why is because it's all true. And the eyewitnesses were alive to verify the facts that very day that Paul penned this letter. And so we can believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon and yet deny that Jesus rose from the dead? Not with any historical honesty. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse, or excuse me, on this reality of the historical evidence of Jesus. In 1862, Spurgeon preached on this, and he said this, Does it not strike you that very many events of the greatest importance recorded in history and commonly believed could not in the nature of things have been witnessed by one-tenth as many as the resurrection of Christ? The signing of famous treaties affecting nations, the births of princes, the remarks of cabinet ministers, the projects of conspirators, the deeds of assassins, any and all of these have been made turning points in history and are never questioned as facts, and yet but few could have been present to witness them. 
I venture to assert that even the most recent political event, which has caused so much sorrow in our whole nation, the death of the lamented Prince Albert, had not nearly so many witnesses as the resurrection of Christ. That if it came to a matter of dispute, it were far easier to prove that Christ is risen than to prove that the prince is dead. If it came to the counting of the witnesses who saw the prince die and could attest the identity of the body now resting in the royal vault with that which they saw fever-stricken in the bedchamber, it strikes me that they would turn out to be far fewer than those who saw the Lord after he had risen and were persuaded that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and who had burst the bonds of death. We believe that the very best attested fact in all of history is the resurrection of Christ. Historical doubts concerning the existence of Napoleon Bonaparte or the stabbing of Julius Caesar or the Norman conquest would be quite as reasonable as doubts concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. None of these matters have such witnesses as those who testify of him. Witnesses who were manifestly truthful since they suffered for their testimony and most of them died ignominious and painful deaths as a result of their belief. We have more and better evidence for this fact than for anything else which is written in history, either sacred or profane. Oh, how should we rejoice, we who hang our salvation wholly upon Christ, that beyond a doubt it is established that now is Christ risen from the dead. And to that we can all say, Amen. And so with that record of history established, we consider Paul's words. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Have you ever wondered why the resurrection is important at all? Has it ever crossed your mind to consider why Paul says in the previous verses, that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, the response isn't of Christians, oh, well, no big deal, we got it wrong. That's not the response he gives. Rather, he says this, if this never happened, if the resurrection never happened, then Christians are above all men to be pitied. We're fools. We're wasting our lives on nothing. Paul isn't saying what so many wish to say today. That whether or not the resurrection really happened, that doesn't really matter. No, Paul is saying quite the opposite. And in fact, if you read through the New Testament with the resurrection in mind, you'll realize that while the gospel is clearly proclaimed all throughout, whenever the apostles preached, the thing they were most often focused on was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why is it so important? Because with the resurrection of Christ, the whole of Christianity either stands or falls. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we have no business being here right now. It's a waste of time. Because Jesus is no different than Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or Gandhi or whoever else anyone wants to put their hope in. But you see, the divinity of Christ most surely finds its proof in the resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 1.4 that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. 
In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there's no reason to think he's God. However, if he was raised from the dead, we have another story to tell. Also, Christ's sovereignty, his power depends on his resurrection. Romans 14, 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, he was raised from the dead, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He's Lord because of his resurrection. What about our justification, our right standing before God in Christ's righteousness? Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And of course, our resurrection, our resurrection from the dead depends on Jesus' resurrection. Peter, writing about the Holy Spirit, comments and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In you. You see, if Christ wasn't raised, then you won't be raised. But if Christ was raised, then all who fall asleep in Christ have not perished, but in their flesh will surely behold our God. And we could keep on going because the fact is that this runs all throughout Scripture and all throughout every blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus from regeneration onward throughout all of eternity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance, and to deny it is to deny the Christian faith. So two quick things from verse 20. I want us to think about having considered the reliability and importance of the resurrection. The first is this. If you are in Christ, your death from this world is but lying down to sleep and awakening on heaven's shores. Notice at the end of verse 20, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep. This is the language we see repeatedly in the Bible for one who dies in Christ. Just as you lay down to go to sleep each night and awake the next day to a new series of events to live out, so too in Christ you will lie down in physical earthly death to awaken to new life in heaven. We go to sleep, as Paul says, but we awaken to full everlasting life before the throne of God. The body sleeps in its bed in the earth, but the soul lives on. And think about the picture we get from this. What a blessing from God's sleep is, right? All of you parents of young children say, amen. <laughs> for the one who suffers, for the one who's in pain or endures sickness, for the one who struggles to sleep, for the one who uses his body in physical labor, for the mom who's so often awoken to tend to her children's needs, to the man whose pressures of work weigh on him constantly, 
to the thinker in his difficulties, to the one who is enduring hardship, so often the greatest relief that we have in this life for a time, for a number of hours, is that we might find rest, we might find sleep. It's something we all do, but, but so often we just take advantage of the reality of our need and of the usefulness and of the blessing of sleep until it's something that's taken away from us when we're no longer able to do it for one reason or another. But sleep makes the blessing of the Sabbath a bit more of a reality for us, doesn't it? Spurgeon writes, Sleep shuts to the door of the soul and bids all intruders tarry for a while, that the royal life within may enter into its summer garden of ease. From the sweat of his brow, man is delivered by sleep. And the thorn and thistle of the curse cease to tear his flesh. It is a great blessing. And so it is when the body goes to sleep in Christ. We have a picture here of a forever rest, of forever being comforted and brought to relief and no longer having to tarry and having to wrestle with the struggles of everyday earthly life. So you see, while so often we fear death, there really is no greater blessing to come for the believer because it's, it's in that death that we will experience relief from all that we dread in this life. One of the blessings God gives us as Christians is the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, every Sunday, where we get just a bit of the foretaste of heaven, of what this will be like, a small glimpse into the rewards that await us as God's people a day where we are taken up into the worship of God, gathering with His people, resting on our beds, contemplating heavenly things, not worrying about our earthly toils, not concerning ourselves with normal daily affairs, but taking up the whole day in the worship and fellowship and reading and thinking and resting in Christ. This is why when we rightly use the Lord's Day, we can call it a delight, as God says. Because we get a glimpse of what it's going to be like one day to awaken on heaven's shores and live the rest of eternity with Jesus Christ. And as we saw already, all of this is possible because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we don't need to fear death. We just fall asleep in Christ with the sure promise that we too one day will be raised from the dead. And not just our souls but eventually to our bodies. But you see, the difference is that while our bodies will go to the grave weary and worn and tired and sore, they will not rise in the same way. They go there with, with calloused hands and withered lungs and stretch marks and failing hearts and wrinkled skin, but they wake up in the beauty and glory of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, when another person dies in Christ, we are going to be sad. We are going to be heartbroken. But we don't need to look at them as those who have died hopelessly. But as Jesus said of Lazarus, we can simply say, they sleep. And we can hear the words of Jesus say, and I come to wake him up out of his sleep. The grave is no more repulsive or detestable to a believer than the most comfortable bed we can find on our most weary day. Because the grave, when we are in Christ, 
is where we find true joy in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who secured our future resurrection as his people. Well, the last thing we see because of the resurrection of Christ is that when we die in this world, we die a death leading to greater life. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits to those who have fallen asleep. That's what he says in verse 20. Now, obviously, he's making an agricultural reference here. We get a picture of a farmer sowing seeds or planting seeds. And so how it would be done in Jesus' day is he would get a handful of seeds and he would throw them out after the ground was sort of tilled up so that the seed could land in softened dirt. He'd throw it one way and then throw it the next. So he's walking down his rows, throwing out seeds. And then later, the farmer comes back and tills the seeds under the ground so that they might grow up. Well, what happens to a seed when it goes in the ground? Well, the first thing a seed does when it goes in the ground is it dies. The seed dies. Why does it die? It dies so that it comes back to life in the form of a plant. And this is what Paul means by Christ being the first fruits. Christ was the first one to undergo the process of dying and being put into the ground, tilled under, if you will, only to experience birth of new life from the grave. If you've ever planted anything from seeds or maybe your kids have done that, most of us have at some point in, in school, you get a little styrofoam cup and put your, your bean seed in there and cover it with dirt and water it. But the joy of that is not in putting the seed in the dirt. The joy comes. That morning you wake up and that little green sprig is sprouting out of that dirt. There's great joy when you start to see life that's what we have. You, you see, we weep. We do weep when we hear those words, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. As we hear the dirt hit the top of the casket, we mourn. But think of the farmer as he scatters his seeds. It's not the most pleasant act. It's not the most pleasant sound to have the seeds hit the dull, cold earth to be tilled under the ground. But for him... For him, he doesn't weep when he sows his seeds. He doesn't groan or sigh when he's scattering his seed. Instead, he is hopeful. Instead, he is excited for what is to come. He may even whistle while he works because in time, in time, the seed that is asleep in the ground will be raised to new life. And for the believer, that is our hope, that is our reality, that is our great joy. Jesus is the first fruit of all who will be brought to life from death in the grave. The first, the best, the greatest. It was him. And here's what we see. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says that if we're at home with the body, we're away from the Lord. But if we are away from the body, we're present with the Lord. So instantly, upon our earthly death, going to sleep, the soul departs from the body and is present with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we read in Luke 23, 43, remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus as he was being crucified, he recognized who Jesus was. He identified that he himself is a sinner, but Jesus Christ was Lord. And Jesus told him, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. 
You see, your body will be in the tomb. Your body will be in the ground, but your soul, if you are in Christ, your soul will be in heaven. The immortal soul of the Christian is in an instant with Christ upon our death. And if you read further in our chapter here, you see in verse 52, at the sound of the last trumpet, in other words, on the day of judgment, bodies will be raised from the dead and be perfected and united with the soul. So after the sowing, after the decay comes, we see the upspringing, the new life coming up from the grave. Like the farmer then, we soon perceive that the process of death is the only way to bring about new vibrant life. We must die that we might live. And this is all ours to behold because Christ was raised from the dead. And so all of us can look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice. We can know that our preaching and our believing in Christ is powerful and it is true. We can preach the foolishness of the cross of the Lord Jesus and of the resurrection with complete confidence because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And we see that in the end, God will redeem from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Our faith is well-founded. Our faith is well-substantiated. Our faith is true, and it is confirmed in Jesus' resurrection and the promise of our resurrection that we, like the first fruits of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, will also spring up from the ground made new, vibrant, unchanging, and glorious in life everlasting. Those who die in Christ will dwell eternally with Christ. So in terms of the life to come, when we die, we don't really die in the sense that we think. We sleep, and we awaken to the presence of our Lord. So we don't need to be pitied. We have a great salvation with an everlasting hope. We can press on without fear of condemnation because our life here is but a mist, but life with Christ goes on forever and ever. But listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's something you and I can agree on. All these people sitting around you and this person standing right here in front of you, we're all, all of us, we're sinners. Every one of us. And, and my thought about that begins every single morning as soon as I wake up and look in the mirror. I'm not impressed with what I see. So you might say, well, Christians aren't any better than I am. And all of us will say, you're absolutely right. We're not any better than you are at all. But here's the thing. God doesn't save us from his wrath because we're good people. None of us are good people. God doesn't save us because we are lovely people. All of us, if we are true about what's in our hearts, What's in our minds? What's on our tongues? We recognize we're not very lovely people. God doesn't save us because we're deserving people. Not one of us deserves what Christ gave on our behalf in dying for us. But God saves us despite who we are and despite what we have done. You might ask, well, how does that work? 
How, how do undeserving people get love from God? How do guilty How do rebellious people get affection from God? How do condemned people get mercy from God? And here's the answer. It's grace. It's grace. It's at the center of all that we believe. Christians are people who are all about grace. We're sinners. We do not deserve. We do not merit. We do not earn God's favor. We do not earn God's love. None of us can claim a right to what God has done to be kind to us, to forgive us, to be merciful, to embrace us, to endure with us, to deliver us into His eternal presence by our own resurrection. None of us deserve that or are worthy of that. But that is God's kindness at work. It is all of grace. And Paul says, I am saved by grace. And he says to all of us, we, if we are saved, are saved by grace. And that's all. And all who are saved from death and hell and sin and judgment are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Christ, if you're not following Christ, if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I commend him to you, that you would look to him, that you would love him, that you would follow him. And that you would know that all that He calls you to in this life is for your good. That you might know true life everlasting and that you might experience all of the benefits that come with Christ. One of the most significant being that in the end, you make your way through the grave to heaven's shores because you too will be res- resurrected with Him. And when God saves a person by grace, He empowers us to live a new life a life that has eternal value, that produces valuable fruit, that bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what all of us need to hear this morning, every one of us. At the center of the Christian faith is the gospel. And at the center of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a cross and an empty tomb. Because Jesus truly died on behalf of his people taking on him the whole weight of sin that was ours to bear. But Jesus conquered sin and death by being raised from the dead that we might have hope, that we might have life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.